Christ will call on you. And if you repent of your sin, meaning you don't add Jesus to your already existing life, you actually... Welcome to Uncaged Bible Study. We hope our name gives it away as we are looking to unleash God's word in its entirety from beginning to end and unlock the power within the pages of scripture. We aim to restore the authority of God's word in a world that has lost its understanding of doctrinal truths, as well as shed a light on how from the first page to the last page, the Bible is pointing us towards Messiah, our Savior, Jesus. So we hope you enjoy the Bible study today. And if you did, follow us or share the podcast to help us spread the word around the globe. And if you leave us a five-star review, that's a great way to let us know that you say amen and are impacted by what you've heard. So thank you for joining us on this journey. And in the words of Charles Spurgeon, the Bible is like a caged lion. It does not need to be defended. It simply needs to be let out of its cage. Let's unlock the cage together. Before we get into chapter 11, the closing statements of chapter 10, I think, are important. So starting in, uh, in verse 30 to verse 39 of chapter 10, just because this will come up towards the end of what we're, we're dealing with in chapters 11 through 13. So Nehemiah chapter 10, verse 30 says, We would not give our daughters as wives to the peoples of the land, nor take their daughters for our sons. Basically, they're promising after this revival moment, after the walls have been built, that they're not going to engage in relationships with foreigners like Solomon did so that they don't give themselves over to pagan ideas. And they're promising to do that and to promising that they would not let the next generation do that. Verse 31, if the peoples of the land brought wares or any grain to sell on the Sabbath day, we would not buy it from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day, and we would forego the seventh year's produce and the exacting of every debt. So now they're making a promise about keeping the practices that kicked them out in the first place. The reason they were in Babylon and exiled was because they didn't keep the Sabbath years for agriculture. Every seventh year, they were supposed to let the land rest. So now they're going above and beyond. They're saying, not only are we going to keep the rest, keep resting the land every seven years like we're supposed to, we're also going to make sure we keep the Sabbath day every week holy as is commanded by God. And we're not going to buy or sell or work, and we're not going to let anybody else sell us anything on the Sabbath day. And then verses 32 through 39 um, are really a promise to get back to proper Levitical worship. So that's how the last section of Nehemiah ended. Now we get into a different moment in time. It says, now the leaders of the people dwelt at Jerusalem. The rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of ten to dwell in Jerusalem, the holy city, and nine-tenths were there to dwell in other cities. So what's going on is the walls have been built. They're ready, able to defend themselves. The um, They've had this sort of spiritual revival moment where people are saying they're committed to following through on these practices, to keep away from paganism, 
to keep the Sabbath holy and to reinstitute and keep assured that the Levitical practices of worship are followed. And so now Nehemiah has recognized that there's another big problem, and that is all of the people who live in Israel, the majority of them live outside of Jerusalem, but Jerusalem's the thing that needs to be defended. We just built walls to defend it, but if there's no people, it doesn't matter. <laughs> because if you climb over the walls, you can take the city if no one's there. And so people need to be in the city, rebuild the city, repopulate the city. And so they've decided what they're going to do with all of the population from the rural areas is to say one out of 10 members from this whole population is going to move into Jerusalem to take care of the land. And so that's what they do. They draw straws and 10% of the people move into Jerusalem. And the leaders were the first ones to do it. Now, that might seem counterintuitive. Jerusalem is the holy city. It's where the temple is. It's the thing they've been dying to come back to, to rebuild the temple, to rebuild the wall. Why is it not populated? Why is it this place that no one seems to want to live right now? Well, because Jerusalem got burned down before they rebuilt things. So it's still kind of a trash heap of a city. And for that entire time before the wall was rebuilt, Cities are the thing that people, do, that, that's what you attack. So if you live in the city, you're living in the vulnerable area. If you live in the rural areas, it's much less likely that you're going to experience warfare or people marching through if, they, if you have enemies. And Jerusalem, as it still does today, had a lot of enemies. And so you're putting yourself in a vulnerable position by moving to Jerusalem. So 10% of the people move and the leaders start with example, by moving and living there, and the people will follow them. So 10% of the people move to the city. Now, I just think that it's interesting, right? We, we've, we have a lot of extra technology. We have a lot of extra uh, tools and buildings and ways to handle our civilizations, but that's still, it's still the same thing. The, the least safe places in a time of war is cities, and it's also the place that is most likely to be attacked. I mean, it's the reason that the United States dropped bombs on highly populated places during World War II to end the war. It's the reason that the Taliban chose New York City to attack because it's the most vulnerable. It's the center of finance. It's where all of the people are. It's where you make the most impact if you're going to attack a place. And so the same thing is true back then, and it hasn't changed now, regardless of the technology that we have. The city is the unsafe place in a time of war. And since this is a time of war, people are reluctant, but they come up with a plan. And the leaders lead the way by example. It says, the, the people blessed all the men who offered, who willingly offered themselves to dwell at Jerusalem. So the second verse also gives us a lot of insight into what's happening. After this revival of sorts, and the city is now defendable because it has walls, that there was a group outside of the leaders who also volunteered themselves to go. So there were some people who didn't have to draw straws because there was a willing group of volunteers ready to go. And so they're highlighted here because volunteering to serve and to, and to do God's will is far better than being coerced. 
and these people uh, are blessed. All the men are blessed for willingly offering themselves to serve and to go move and go do the work that needs to be done. Now, the starting in verse 3, it says, These are the heads of the province who dwelt in Jerusalem, but in the cities of Judah, everyone dwelt in his own possession in their cities, Israelites, priests, Levites, Nethanim, or the temple servants, and uh, descendants of Solomon's servants. So the rest of this, all the way down to verse 22, uh, and even then some after that, are just a list of those who went to go do the work in the city. They're just listing off the people who decided to move into Jerusalem. But there's a little, a little quip in verse 22 that I want to mention. As they're breaking out the, the groups of people who are going to move into Jerusalem and do the work that needs to be done, a lot of this is being defenders. A lot of this is doing the agricultural or the productive work that needs to be done. But in verse 22, we see something a little unique. It says, also the overseer of the Levites, or the, the priests, at Jerusalem was Uzai, the son of Bani, the son of Hashabiah, the son of Mathaniah, the son of Micah, of the sons of Asaph, the singers in charge of the service of the house of God. For it was the king's command uh, concerning them that a certain portion should be for the singers a quota day by day, Pethahiah, the son of uh, Meshezabel, and the children of Zerah, the son of Judah, was the king's deputy in all matters concerning the people. So this little quip shows us that it's not only about repopulating the city, reindustrializing the city to whatever effect that means in biblical times, um, not just defending the city and having a military, and not just having priests perform the sacrifices, but there's also an act of musical worship that's incredibly important. And a group of people were set aside for praise and musical worship, specifically in Jerusalem, to make sure that God is praised. Uh, and musical worship is highlighted even in this moment as they're rebuilding Jerusalem. So think about that and uh, why musical worship is important even still today in our church services. It was an important part of rebuilding the culture of Jerusalem and to keep God's praise being sung. And now verse 25 tells us that as for the villagers with their fields, some of the children of Judah dwelt in Kirjath Arba and its villages, Dibon and its villages, uh, Jacobzeel and its villages. And the rest is actually of this chapter is just those who chose or who drew the straw to live outside of the city of Jerusalem. And it's just a list of those of those people. And then we pick up in chapter 12, and what we see is now another list, and this list is particularly about the priests and the Levites. You even see it in verse 1. Now these are the priests and the Levites who came up with Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, Sariah, Jeremiah, Ezra. And so what you're looking at is all the way back from when the moving back into Jerusalem, starting with Zerubbabel in the first few chapters of, of the book of Ezra, this first movement back to Jerusalem, they're counting the priests and the Levites all the way from that time up until present day. And that is how they spend the rest of chapter 12. Though I do want to stop again in verse 22, where it says, During the reign of Darius the Persian, a record was also kept of the Levites 
and priests who had been heads of their father's houses in the days of Eliashib, uh, Joiada, and Johanan, and Jadua, the sons of Levi, the heads of the father's houses until the days of Johanan, the son of Eliashib, were written in the book of the Chronicles. And so what this is saying is there was a meticulous record kept throughout this whole time. Now, obviously you can tell some of that because of the lists that we've already encountered in chapters 11 and 12. But the point is, God is a God of details. You know, in the New Testament, we look at it in this way where Jesus points out that God can number the hairs on your head. He's a God of details who cares intimately about the people he is watching over. And so even in this instance, this incredible list and detail has been preserved because God cares about those he watches over. And so we'll pick up now in verse 27 and get into the meat of these stories. So now at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought out the Levites in all of their places to bring them to Jerusalem to celebrate the dedication with gladness, both with thanksgiving and singing. With cymbals and stringed instruments and harps, and the sons of the singers gathered together from the countryside around Jerusalem, from the villages of uh, Netaphathites, from the house of Gilgal, from the fields of Geba, and as Asmaveth. For the singers had built themselves villages all around Jerusalem. Then the priests and the Levites purified themselves and purified the people, the gates, and the wall. So I brought leaders of Judah up on the wall and appointed two large thanksgiving choirs. One went to the right hand on the wall towards the refuse gate. After them went Hoshiah and half of the leaders of Judah and Azariah, Ezra, Meshulam, Judah, Benjamin, Shemaiah, Jeremiah, and some of the priest's sons with trumpets. Zechariah, the son of Jonathan, the son of Shemaiah, the son of uh, Mathaniah, the son of Micaiah, the son of Zachar, the son of Asaph, and his brethren, Shemaiah, Azrael, Milali, Gilali, Maai, uh, Nathaniel, Judah, and Hanani, with the musical instruments of David, the man of God, and Ezra the scribe went before them. By the fountain gate in front of the city, in front of them, they went up the stairs of the city of David, and on the stairway of the wall beyond the house of David, as far as the water gate eastward. The other Thanksgiving choir went the opposite way, and I was behind them with half of the people on the wall, going past the tower of ovens as far as the broad wall and above the gate of Ephraim, above the old gate, above the fish gate, the tower of Hananel, the tower of the hundred as far as the sheep gate, and they stopped by the gate of the prison. So the two thousand or the two Thanksgiving choirs stood in the house of God, likewise, I and half of the rulers with me, and the priests Eliakim, Maasiah, Minjamin, Micaiah, Elonai, Zechariah, and Hanani with trumpets, and Maasiah, Shemaiah, Eleazar, Uzai, Jehohanan, uh, Melchijah, Elam, and Ezer. The singers sang loudly with Jezrehiah, the director. Also that day, they offered great sacrifices and rejoiced for God, had made them rejoice with great joy. The women and the children also rejoiced, so the joy of Jerusalem was heard afar off. So that was a lot of reading. But this is what happened, in case you couldn't picture it as we were going through there. Nehemiah, is, as a leader, is making sure that the right things are being followed through. And remember how we stopped and pointed out that part of the unique set of going into Jerusalem was to make sure that there were singers? 
that worshipers were happening inside of Jerusalem? Well, Nehemiah makes sure that there's two choirs, so two groups of singers appointed, and they go up on the wall that was built to defend Jerusalem on the opposite side of the Temple Mount, and they walk in opposite directions, singing and praising God the whole way until they meet up with each other at the temple. And from there, as they're singing, the sacrifices are made to God in praise. So that's the picture there. God's praise is being sang all the way around the border of the city. And it ends at the temple, at the house of worship. That's a pretty cool thing to put in your head about what they're doing and how they're setting up what's happening in Jerusalem. They're asking God to protect them, and they're literally singing his praises around the border of the city and finishing with the worship and sacrifices. So that is the image of what happens there. That's what went down um, as they're dedicating the wall that was now finished. Then it follows up, at the same time, some were appointed over the rooms of the storehouses for the offerings, the first fruits, and the tithes to gather them into the fields of the cities and the portions specified by the law for the priests and Levites. For Judah rejoiced over the priests and the Levites who ministered, both the singers and the gatekeepers kept charge of their God and charge of the purification, according to the command of David and Solomon, his son. For in the days of David and Asaph of old were the chiefs of the singers in songs of praise and thanksgiving to God. In the days of Zerubbabel and in the days of Nehemiah, all Israel gave the portions for the singers and the gatekeepers a portion of each day. They also consecrated holy things for the Levites, and the Levites consecrated them for the children of Aaron. So what you see there is they're returning back to a form of worship that existed when David was king. So they're, they're now going to go on doing the right thing. And David and one of his servants, Asaph, who also wrote a bunch of psalms. David and Asaph wrote a significant portion of the psalms. They're going back to that type of worship, and they're singing and praising God. And now the people who are recognizing that there's these praise and worshipers, there's the Levites who take care of the worship ceremonies, and there are teachers, and people who are dedicating their lives to the ministry, the people are now making a commitment to support them. That's what's happening. Um, and they're doing it in accordance with Levitical law. And they're doing it, they're projecting that they're going to do that in the same fashion as they did when David was king, when the man who reigned in Jerusalem had a heart after God. Now it says in verse 13, On that day they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people, and in it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever come into the assembly of God. So when it says on that day, I don't want you to think that that means this is the same day of the dedication of the wall. This is just talking about a specific day. This is actually down the road because you're going to see things have changed from their previous dedication. So now they're making a new commitment because they have failed to follow through on what they promised. It says, on that day, they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people, and it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever come into the assembly of God, because they had not met the children of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam, 
against them to curse them. However, our God turned the curse into a blessing. So it was when they heard the law that they separated all the mixed multitude of Israel. And so there must be reading from Deuteronomy 23, where they're telling the story about uh, Balak and Balaam and the talking donkey, uh, where the Ammonites are trying and Moabites are trying to defeat the Israelite army. And they ask Balaam, who's a prophet, to curse the Israelites. And he says that he can't, he can only bless them. Uh, and then he, instead of doing the work for them, he tells them how to mess up the Israelites. And uh, they tell, he tells the Ammonites and the Moabites to bring attractive women into the camp of the Israelites to tempt the men and make them fall spiritually, and then they'll fall. And so this is the story that, he, that they're recounting. And it's pointing out this idea that getting involved with pagan worship and giving your heart, getting your heart and emotions mixed in with those who do not worship God will only drag you down, not lift them up. And so now they're having to separate themselves again from the foreign women because they haven't done so. I remember back after the revival when the wall was finished, that was the first thing they promised was they're not going to do that again. Um, and even back in Ezra, that was the thing that Ezra had to force everybody to do in a pretty harsh way. And they had to divorce their foreign wives and send them off. And now they keep falling into this trap. And so now they're rededicating themselves again. Now, before this, Eliashib the priest, having authority over the storerooms of the house of God, was allied with Tobiah. And he had prepared for him a large room where previously they had stored grain offerings and frankincense and articles, the tithes of grain, the new wine and oil, uh, which were commanded to be given to the Levites and singers and gatekeepers and the offerings for the priests. Now, one of the other things they had committed to do was the people committed themselves to take care of those who had dedicated themselves to the ministry. Now, the high priest happens to be allied or related to, meaning he's the son-in-law of Tobiah. If you don't remember who Tobiah was, we found him a little bit earlier in Nehemiah, and he was the one, he was a governor over the land trying to prevent the wall from being built. Um, so he's literally in bed with the enemy. He's the son-in-law of Tobiah. And what he decides to do is to take one of the rooms that was dedicated to hold the offerings for the people who dedicated them li their lives to ministry and give this room to Tobiah. Let him stay in the temple. Um, so we'll see how that goes. During all this, I was not in Jerusalem. For in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I had returned to the king. Then after the days, uh, I obtained leave from the king, and I came to Jerusalem and discovered the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah and preparing a room for him in the courts of the house of God. So what had happened was Nehemiah had gotten things in order, and he went back to his, the palace where King Artaxerxes was. And in Nehemiah's absence evil filled up the place. And they did this while Nehemiah was gone because they could get away with it. The problem is Nehemiah had earned his right to go back to Jerusalem. And so now he heads back and he sees what's happening. Everything they promised, they failed at. 
He said, and it grieved me bitterly, therefore I threw all the household goods of Tobiah out of the room. Now that's what I'm talking about. This is, this is what parents need to do to millennial children. Just throw them out of the house. I'm a millennial, so I can say that. Um, but in, what has happened, Nehemiah comes back and he sees what, that Tobiah is in the room that's supposed to store the goods for those uh, the gifts that were given to the people who dedicated their lives to ministry. He sees it, and so instead, he throws all of Tobiah's things out. And he kicks them out. He says, then I commanded them to cleanse the rooms, and I brought back into them the articles of the house of God with the grain offering and the frankincense. So Nehemiah personally throws everything out, and then he makes everybody who screwed up clean it up. So it's like he's dealing with toddlers. Um, and he's just trying to cement the lesson into their heads. So I also realized that the portions for each that for the Levites had not been given to them. For each of the Levites and the singers who did the work had gone back to his field. So, no, no surprise, the place where you were storing the gifts for the Levites and the people who do ministry uh, was taken up by Tobiah, so they didn't store gifts anymore. So the people doing the ministry didn't get the stuff that they needed for life. So those dedicated to the ministry had left Jerusalem and gone back to the fields because they needed to survive. So I contended with the rulers and said, why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and set them in their place. Then all Judah brought the tithe of the grain and the new wine of the oil uh, to the storehouse. And I appointed as treasures over the storehouse Shelemiah the priest, and Zadok the scribe, and of the Levites, Padiah. And next to them was Hanan, the son of Zakur, the son of Mathaniah, and they were considered faithful, and their task was to distribute to their brethren. So he puts new people in charge so that the priests come back and are taken care of, and the singers come back and they're taken care of uh, because he's put good people overseeing the worship in the house of God. He says, remember me, O oh my God, concerning this, and do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for its services. And he's just asking God, remember that I love you <laughs> and that I'm worshiping you even when everyone else isn't. In those days, I saw people in Judah treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in sheaves and loading donkeys and wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of burdens which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them about the day on which they were selling provisions. Men of Tyre dwelt there also, who brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the children of Judah in Jerusalem. Now, here we go again. Another thing that they made a promise to do was to keep the Sabbath holy, to not be working and selling goods on the Sabbath, and not to buy things from outsiders or from others who were selling on the Sabbath, but there it is right there. They failed again, another promise that they broke. So what is Nehemiah to do? He says, Then I contended with the nobles of Judah and said to them, What evil thing is this that you do, by which you profane the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers do this? And did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on this city? Yet you bring added wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. And he's pointing out, hey, the entire reason we're back here 
is because we serve the time <laughs> that God already punished us for not keeping the Sabbath correctly. Why are you doing it again? So it was at the gates of Jerusalem, as it began to be dark before the Sabbath, that I commanded the gates to be shut in charge that they may not be opened till after the Sabbath. Then I posted some of my servants at the gates so that no burdens would be brought in on the Sabbath day. Now, like I said earlier, it's like he's dealing with toddlers. He closed the gates of the city so they can't get through. This is the baby gates, the toddler gates. You're not allowed to enter this place. <laughs> stay where you're supposed to stay. Do what you're supposed to do. That's how he's treating the people. He's showing them what they need to do and preventing them um, from failing on the promises that they had kept. So now the merchants and the sellers of all kinds of wares lodged outside Jerusalem once or twice. Then I warned them and said to them, why do you spend the night around the wall? If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. Um, and that's not a euphemism for prayer. <laughs> From that time on, they came no more on the Sabbath. So Nehemiah takes care of business. He goes outside to the people that are trying to tempt and coerce the, the Israelites into breaking their promises to God. And Nehemiah goes out there and he goes, what are you doing? You come back. You got to deal with me. And they decided that wasn't a good idea. Probably Nehemiah was fairly well known as a right-hand man of Artaxerxes. I wouldn't want to mess with him either. Verse 22, And I commanded the Levites that they should cleanse themselves so that they should go and guard the gates to sanctify the Sabbath day. Remember me, O oh my God, concerning this also, and spare me according to the greatness of your mercy. In those days, I also saw Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab, and half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod and could not speak the language of Judah, but spoke according to the language of one of the other people. So here they go again. Now he's seeing the evidence of another promise they broke. They have married foreign women, and it's gotten even so bad that the children of the Jews who married foreigners didn't speak Hebrew. They were totally living in the cultural lifestyle of the pagans, which is exactly what they were warned against. That's why they weren't supposed to do it. He said, so I contended with them and cursed them, struck some of them and pulled out their hair and made them swear by God, saying, you shall not give your daughters as wives to their sons, nor take their daughters for your sons of yourselves. All right, so I just want to read that again. Uh, so that you get the emphasis here. This is what Nehemiah is doing. He, content, he fought with them, contended with them, cursed them, struck them, punched them, <laughs> and pulled out their hair and made them swear by God. So he is not messing around. Um, just be glad I'm not Nehemiah, all right? I, I, I can't imagine what that's like. How mad was he? He, he, he went back to Artaxerxes, knowing he had left the place in order. But this is the second law of thermodynamics, acting out in public. Order always moves towards chaos. It doesn't go the other way around. It's, the argument, it's one of the arguments against evolution. Chaos doesn't turn to order. Order turns to chaos. Things get more chaotic as time goes on. It's hard to keep things orderly. And... He left, he was gone, and how did the people act when the authority figure that
that was leading the revival walked away. They went back to their old ways. And so what does he say to them as he's trying to shake the truth into them and trying to get them to understand the point? This is what he says. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin by these things? Yet among many nations there was no king like him who was beloved of his God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, pagan women caused even him to sin. So what he's saying, do you think you're better than Solomon? Now Solomon is, a, is venerated by these people. They Solomon's temple is the thing that people were weeping over when the new temple was built, because it's nowhere near as glorious as the temple Solomon built. And Solomon is the greatest king, not spiritually, but the greatest king in terms of the expanse and the wealth and the peace that Israel had ever experienced. So they expanded their, their property. They expanded their peace. They expanded their wealth. He's the wealthiest king who had ever lived. He's the wisest man who had ever lived. He wrote a significant portion of scripture and wisdom that they all read in temple, in synagogue. And he's saying, do you actually think you're better than Solomon? You're not. Solomon, who was loved by God and blessed by God and made king over all Israel, and we all know how good of a king he was, even fell victim to the thing you're doing. Do you think that not having as much wisdom as Solomon, you can somehow escape the things that Solomon couldn't? Of course not. And he's sharing with them something they would clearly understand. If Solomon couldn't do it, how do you think you could if he's significantly more wise than you and has way more resources? Should we then hear of your doing all this great evil, trans transgressing against our God by marrying pagan women? And one of his sons, Joiada, the son of Eliashib, the high priest, was a son-in-law of Sanballat, the Horonite. Therefore, I drove him from me. So, Sanballat is another one of the guys who is, as you look back, remember, he was one of the people trying to prevent the wall from being built and who had a grudge against the Israelites. Yet, here he is. The high priest is a son-in-law of Sanballat. So therefore, I drove him from me. Remember them, O oh my God, because they have defiled the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. Thus, I cleanse them of everything pagan, I also assigned duties to the priests and the Levites, each to his service, and to bringing the wood offering and the first fruits at appointed times. Remember me, O oh my God, for good. So that's the whole book of Nehemiah, and here's the picture that it paints. I think it, it gives us really good insight into, one, leadership, and two, repentance. Because this is the story that Nehemiah had. It starts out with Nehemiah coming brokenhearted because the walls are broken and burned down and the Israelites can't defend themselves. So they rebuild the wall and they do it quickly and they build up for themselves a defense. And the outside of the city looks like a regular fortified city again. It looks the way it should. But inside even though the people outwardly 
profess that they're going to follow God, they don't. And so this is the same problem we have today with the religious folk. I say religious with air quotes. Meaning, you try to add God to your life. So you're living this life. You think it's, you're somewhat decent. You're not a bad person. You never killed anybody. Um, and you add God to your life. You outwardly present yourself as whatever, I guess a Christian. Um, and you look the part. You do the right things. You show up. You go to church on Sunday. You, you, you pay whatever. You do, you do your deeds. Maybe you serve on a committee or whatever. And maybe you've committed to things, but if your heart hasn't changed, then it will not last. The outside looking good has nothing to do with revival, has nothing to do with repentance. The outer surface can look great, and you can, you can act for a while, but it's not lasting. Nehemiah built the walls he created the defenses. He organized everything for the people. But once he was gone, the people's hearts became clear. And so legalism or just doing it because it's the right thing without having a heart for God is nothing. It doesn't do you any good. And so the story of Christ is the reverse of Nehemiah. What happens with Christ is Christ will call on you. And if you repent of your sin, meaning you don't add Jesus to your already existing life, you actually turn your life over to Christ and you turn your heart away from the things and the sin of this world and the things that you've hold dear to these material possessions. And instead, you give your heart and allegiance to Christ. He will change you from the inside out. And your heart will be pointed towards God. And then you will be able to put on the armor of God in Ephesians 6. And then defend yourself from spiritual warfare in a productive way. Because it's not a sham. It's not a false flag. It's not a paper tiger. It's the Holy Spirit really defending you. It's not just you checking the boxes and making sure you did all of the right things and you filled all the boxes. You kneeled at the right time or you went to the right group, or you presented yourself as the, in a certain committee or whatever the outward appearance is, if the outward appearance isn't coming from an inner place of devotion and service and a heart that has been turned towards God and is doing this out of a gratitude for what he's done for you, it's not the same. That's, the, that's what separates religion from a relationship with Jesus. Repentance. I'll Give an example. Just this has happened at the previous church that I was a part of uh, before I had met all of you. There was a, a, a couple who I noticed started coming for quite a while. And uh, they actually they got involved with the youth group eventually. And things started to look a little bit different for them. And they started to look a little bit more free and loose. And I, I asked them, because I was part of the youth group, I said, What's the, I've, I've noticed a physical change in you. 
what's happened? And I said, well, we used to be Mennonites. And so we lived by a very strict code. We dressed a certain way. We um, worshipped very clearly and succinctly. You know, we were part of a community that held us to a very specific standard. Uh, and we saw that as God's worship. But then we got invited here, and they came dressed looking like they were from Lancaster, Pennsylvania, right? And, but they stayed because they actually felt more welcomed by this community of people they looked nothing like than the people who are constantly holding them to this level of standard that they saw as God's worship. And so they kept coming, and slowly but surely they started wearing jeans and t-shirts and looking more like the rest of us. But the bigger thing that was happening was their heart was changed. They weren't so rigid about making sure that they worshiped God in the appropriate manner. It was that they loved God, and out of that love of God flowed worship. It wasn't doing a set of rules so that they could get to God. It was that God had infiltrated them, and the love that that shown created worship, and it just flowed out of them. That's the difference, and Nehemiah shows us that pretty clearly. Let's pray. Father God, thank you. Thank you for this book. Thank you for this, this story. Thank you for good leaders and directives to follow. Thank you for showing us the difference between what it means to love you and what it means to try to fit in. God, I, I pray that we can take these lessons and apply them to our lives and that we can love you deeper we can love you more intimately and know you more intimately. And I pray that you change us from the inside out, that we let you do the work in us that causes worship rather than us trying to do the work to get to you. Because as it's said in your word, all the good works we try to do are as a filthy rags before you. The righteousness of Jesus is the only thing you accept. So clothe us in it as we repent from our sins. And do a work in us so that we can worship you out of the love you have for us because Christ first loved us. In Jesus' name, amen.